Okay, well, please turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8 this morning. Psalm 119, verse 1, says, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking, Lord, for you to make these things true of us. Lord, that the attitude and the perspective of the prophet, Lord, would be our attitude and our perspective toward your word. Lord, that we would love your word more than gold and silver. Lord, that it would be sweeter to us than honey from the honeycomb. Lord, that we would see the goodness of your word. Lord, it's virtue. It's, Lord, the righteousness that is found therein. And Lord, how good it is for us to walk in the ways of the Lord. So that we would not be disobedient and rebellious children, but rather that we would be humble and that, Lord, we would come to you desiring to be taught by you, Lord, in the fear of the Lord with true humility and sincerity of heart, and that, Lord, you would instruct us and that we would walk in our ways. So, Lord, may this be indicative of us. Lord, may it be true of us. Lord, that our way is blameless and that we walk in the law of the Lord. And, Lord, we pray that you would be our teacher and our guide. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to start a series through Psalm 119. It'll be 22 weeks, 22 weeks, because there are 22 sections in this psalm. And we know that Psalm, the book of Psalms is the longest book in the Bible. And the longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119. And it's no coincidence that this psalm, this longest chapter in the Bible, is dedicated to extolling the virtues and the greatness of the Word of God. Right? As Christians... Even in the New Testament, we are explicitly told to teach and admonish one another with psalms. It says in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. When he says that we are to admonish one another with psalms, this certainly includes all of the psalms, including Psalm 119, right? The most lengthy of them all. The point being here is that we cannot love God. We cannot worship God without the Word of God. It is impossible for these things to happen. The idea that one would love God, or that one can serve God, or that one can worship God, detached from the Word of God, is completely, utterly antithetical to the teaching of the Bible. It is impossible to love God without loving his holy word. And it is impossible to love his holy word without reading it, without attending to the teaching and preaching of the word of Christ. One of the primary ways that we show our love for God is by our longing and our desire for his word. So this is why this is central to the Bible and why, again, the longest chapter in the whole Bible is dedicated to the Word of God, to teaching us about its greatness and its value. Another point by way of introduction, when the prophet is extolling the virtues of the Word of God, he is without any doubt including the first five books of the Bible, right? which is commonly called the Law of Moses. Now the historical interpretation, though there's no superscription here in terms of the author of Psalm 119, the historical interpretation is that the prophet David was the author. And we know that David lived around 1000 BC, about a thousand years before the New Testament was written. He also lived before the major and minor prophets were written. Right? During David's life, those books of the Bible that had been written at this time were the Law of Moses, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Job, right? In terms of the chronology of the Bible, the historicity of the Bible, the events of those books took place before the life of David, even though some of them may have still been being put together during his time, but at least everything after 
was after his life, not including those books. Yet here in Psalm 119, he's talking about the greatness of the Word of God. He's referring to the first five books of the Bible. Without any doubt, this is part of what he is talking about. And while what is said in Psalm 119 applies to everything in the Bible, from what we have today, from Genesis to Revelation, the point that I'm making is that this love and praise of the Word of God must necessarily, without any doubt, include the law of Moses. Yet it is common today for people to have disdain for the law of Moses, to find it confusing and difficult and even repulsive for many people. Right? One Christian pastor said that Christians need to unhitch the Old Testament from their faith. He said this. His name is Andy Stanley. He's the son of Charles Stanley. Andy Stanley, a pastor down in, I think, Georgia, somewhere down there in the South, said Christians need to unhitch the Old Testament from their faith. Is that the attitude of the prophet in Psalm 119? Is that what he's saying, that we need to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament, from the law of Moses? We can't have this attitude because it's antithetical to the Bible. The longing, the desire, the love for the Word of God expressed in Psalm 119 must be our attitude of every single Word of God, from Genesis to Revelation, including Leviticus, including Numbers, including Deuteronomy, including all of the Word of God. This is the attitude that we should have. Lastly, by way of introduction, the prophet is writing from the perspective of a Christian of one who has been born again, who has a new heart, who is filled with the Holy Spirit of God. The psalm speaks repeatedly of obedience, of living a life pleasing to God. When it's talking about this, obedience, faithfulness, walking in the path of God, however it uses to describe it, because it describes the life of obedience in a hundred different ways. Okay, It's describing it over and over and over again in many different ways. He is not talking about obedience as the good works he is going to present to God as the basis for his salvation. He's not talking about works-based salvation. He's not talking about legalism. He's not promoting in any way, shape, or form man-made religion. The prophet is speaking about the Christian life as one who has been born again, as one who has been redeemed, as one who has a new heart that is rightly aligned with the Word of God, a heart that has the law of God written upon it. So he's describing the Christian life, which is a life of obedience that comes as a result of our salvation, as the fruit and manifestation of the salvation we have received from God. One who wants to know what God says. He wants to know how to live a life pleasing to God. He wants to know and understand the Word of God because it is foundational for his spiritual life. And so he greatly desires it. And this should be our attitude as well. This should be the attitude, and it will be the attitude of all true Christians. Lord, teach me your will because I want to know it, because I love you, Because of what you've done for me. Because of the salvation you've given to me, I want to be an obedient child of God. This is what he's writing from, from this perspective. None of it makes sense if he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. None of it makes sense if he's talking about works-based salvation. That is not the way he is writing. He's writing as a believer. So with that in mind, let's begin Psalm 119. And again, this is broken down into 22 sections. 22 sections, and we'll do one a week. One a week. Verse 1. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Here, he's talking about blessedness. What is the source? What is the means of true blessedness? Now, isn't this what everyone wants and desires in this life? Everyone wants to be blessed. Everyone wants peace They want happiness. They want security. They want all of these things. They want the virtues and benefits of having the blessed life. The world seeks for blessing apart from the will of God. The world seeks for blessing according to fleshly, carnal, worldly, sinful means. They believe that this life 
in the many comforts, the pleasures, the possessions that one might obtain in this life, that if we can acquire enough of these things, then it will lead to a state of blessing, a state of happiness, that this is the good life, this is the life they desire, and that is why they pursue and they seek after the things of this present world. Notice Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Verse 31, Matthew 6, 31, do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. There, when he says the Gentiles, Gentiles equals unbelievers in this context. He's talking about worldly people. They are eagerly seeking what? Food, drink, clothing, things that pertain to this present life. Not that in the right context, in the right understanding, there isn't a place for us to pursue those things because we need them. But pursuing them as the source of ultimate happiness, of ultimate blessedness. We have to have the things of this world without any regard to spiritual life or the life to come or eternal life. Right? That is a sinful, evil thing. And this is what the Gentiles do. They eagerly seek after the things of this present world because they believe if they obtain enough of the things of this world, then that is the good life. That is the blessed life. Also, 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. It says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. There, the world has the lust of the flesh, right, those desires, those sinful, evil desires that proceed from the flesh, the lust of the eyes, those things that are delightful to the eyes that the world desires and wants, right? They're not judging things according to faith. They're walking by what they see. They see something, it's delightful to them, and they want it, and they'll pursue sin in order to obtain it. And the boastful pride of life, boasting in this present life, in the abundance of one's possessions, in one's prestige, in one's honor, in one's position in this world. These are the things that the world pursues. The wicked pursue these things because they believe if they can obtain them, obtain enough of them, then they will arrive at a state of blessedness. If we can have enough wealth, enough money, enough pleasures of sin, enough possessions, then we will have the good life, right? The world believes that one's life does consist in the abundance of his possessions. And the more possessions you have, the more blessed you are, the happier you're going to be. But this is not the Christian life. This is not the perspective of the believer, of the Christian, of one who has a new heart. What does the new heart say? Well, notice he says, the blessed life is the one who is blameless, right? Blessed are those whose way is blameless. And what does it mean to be blameless? Who walk in the law of the Lord. This is where true blessing is found. This is the good life. The good life, according to the Christian, according to the word of God, is the obedient life. It is the life lived in the fear of the Lord. To please God, to obey God, to do his holy will. This is how the book of Psalm begins. In Psalm 1, isn't this what he says there as well? The blessed man is being described. And who is the blessed man in Psalm 1? How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Right? The blessed man is the one who rejects sin, and instead of delighting in sin, he delights in the law of the Lord. 
and he meditates on it day and night so that he can obey God, so that he can live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Those who resist the word of God, those who find the law of God to be a burden, to be something distasteful and odious, they show that their desires are not rightly aligned. They are not thinking correctly about the law of God, nor about the obedient Christian life. How could someone who is a true Christian grumble under obedience? How could he find it distasteful when a true Christian knows and understands that the obedient life is the blessed life? Right? If someone prefers eating garbage over eating a home-cooked hot meal, right? if someone prefers living in the filth of the street instead of living in a clean and comfortable home, wouldn't we say that there's something wrong with that person? He's not right in the head, right? He's not thinking correctly. He's not looking at life correctly. Well, the same is true here spiritually. If someone has disdain for obedience to God, if someone grumbles when he hears the teaching of the law of the Lord, if he has a greater desire for sin than for godliness, he's not right in the head. Actually, he's not right in the heart. That's the problem. His heart is not rightly aligned. The true believer knows that the blameless life, the life defined by walking in the law of the Lord, this is the good life. This is the life of ultimate blessing. The flesh hates the law of the Lord. The flesh does not want God telling us what to do. The flesh tries to convince us that the law of the Lord is binding on us that it is a burden to us, that it is a detriment to our joy and to our happiness and to our goodness. But that's not coming from faith. It's coming from the flesh. This idea does not proceed from faith. How could we ever imagine that the good God of heaven would prescribe for us a law that is oppressive, evil, and harmful to us? That God that God would give to us a law that is detrimental to our goodness and to our blessedness. How could we believe as Christians that our loving heavenly Father would give rules to us that are going to destroy us, that are going to be for our harm? This is not from faith, but this comes from the flesh. This is as we read in Malachi, Malachi 1.13. This is what the flesh says about the law of God. Malachi 1.13. My, how tiresome it is, and you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. This is what unbelievers say about the law of God. And even in believers, the flesh, this is what the flesh wants to convince us of. How tiresome it is. How much of a burden it is to obey God. You sniff at it. Also, Malachi 3.14. It is vain to serve God. What profit is it that we keep his charge, that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? The flesh says it's vain to serve God. But that is from the flesh, and we must reject it. We must reject it. We must repent of it. We must put to death the flesh within us and reject any idea or notion that the law of the Lord is oppressive or harmful or detrimental to our goodness and to our happiness. Instead, we have to have the perspective of Psalm 119, verse 1. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, right? How blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord. And this is what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ teaches as well from Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Right? This is what the psalmist is saying here as well. This is the easy yoke of God. This is the easy light burden of Christ. 
when the heart is changed and when we see correctly that this isn't a heavy burden, this is a good burden, this is a light burden, this is an easy yoke for us to bear, the yoke of obedience to God because it leads to our good and to our blessing. Right? The flesh thinks obedience is a burden, but the new heart that is taught by the Holy Spirit of God, it knows that the pathway of God's commandments is not a burdensome path, it is a delightful path. It is not a pathway of slavery, it is the pathway of liberty and freedom. The blameless life, the life defined by walking in the path of the law of the Lord, the obedient Christian life, this is what it means to have freedom in Christ. This is true Christian liberty. Christian liberty is not liberty to sin. This is how it is commonly interpreted today. Christian liberty is not the liberty to live however you want to live, to live however you please. Christian liberty is not a life free from rules, from commandments, from laws, where it's just a free-for-all and you can do whatever you want. It does not mean that there are not specific instructions from God. But there are many people who think in this way, who teach Christian freedom in this way. Freedom in Christ means just do whatever you want. There's no rules, no commandments, no specifics, no laws. All you have to do is love God. Just love God and love your neighbor and then do whatever you want. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Christian liberty is liberty from sin and liberty to righteousness. From sin to righteousness, this is what it means to be free in Christ. It means to be free to live a godly life, to be set free from sin so that we want to and we desire living a life of obedience to God, which is walking in the specific laws of the Lord. John 8, 34 to 36. This is what Jesus teaches here. Jesus teaches us what true freedom is. Not the false freedom being promoted in many circles today. John 8, 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free Indeed. Here in this passage, what is slavery? Slavery is defined as slavery to sin. Slavery is practicing sin. And according to 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, sin is what? Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So slavery is lawlessness. If slavery is lawlessness then what is the opposite of slavery? What is freedom? Not lawlessness, but what? Law-keeping, obedience to God, faithfulness to God. This is what true freedom is. True freedom is being obedient to God, not as the basis of our salvation, of course not. No one believes that. But as a result of our salvation, as a result of being set free from sin, the Son sets us free, and then we are free indeed. Then we are free to live a godly life, to live a righteous life, to live an obedient life to God, not as the basis of our salvation, but as the fruit or the result of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Isn't it true that God and God alone is truly free? God is free. God is enslaved to no one. And isn't it also true that God lives in a state of ultimate supreme blessedness? He is the blessed only God. So when we align our will with the will of God, then what do we obtain? Freedom and blessedness. We obtain those things as well. This is what the new heart understands. The life of sin is the life of slavery and is the life of misery. The life of obedience is the life of freedom and the life of blessing. And so it pursues those things. It pursues those. Verse 2, how blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. Here he further defines the blessed life. The blessed life is here seen as those who observe his testimonies. His testimonies. The observing here is not 
as a mere bystander, but it is the observing with the intent of obeying, right? Observing them equals obeying the testimonies of God. He observes the testimonies of God so that he can know the will of God, so that he can keep the will of God, right? The goal, the end goal of everything is to obey the will of God. And here, the word of the Lord is referred to as his testimonies, the testimonies of God. God is testifying to man concerning truth and righteousness. Isn't this what happens in the court of law? The person gets up, the witness gets up, and he gives a testimony concerning what is true, what is right, what it is that he saw. Well, this is what God is doing in his word. God is testifying. God is telling us, declaring to us what is true, what is righteous, what is good, what is evil, right? God is the one telling us these things. So they're not opinions. These aren't opinions or suggestions, but God is himself testifying to mankind about the good and right way. Do we want to know the mind of the Lord? Do we want to know the thoughts of God? Do we want to know his declarations and his testimonies? This should be our desire. What does God say about idolatry? What does God say about blasphemy? What does God say about the Lord's day? What does he say about marriage, about adultery, right? About money, about raising children. What does God say about homosexuality? What does he say about divorce? What does he say about church attendance? What does he say about forgiveness and about sin? Isn't this what the Bible is doing? Addressing issue after issue after issue after issue. Thousands of issues found in the Bible. And whatever the Bible addresses, it is giving to us God's testimony concerning this or that issue. And as Christians, this should be our greatest desire. To know what does God say about this? We have a million voices in our ear all day, every day, telling us what we need to believe, right? What we need to do, how we need to live. But none of those things matter. No voice matters except one voice. And who is the one voice? The good shepherd, the one shepherd, the word of the Lord, the testimonies of God. This is what we should desire to want to know so that we can have confidence concerning the will of God. What does God say about these things? What is his testimony concerning this issue and that issue? And when God's testimony comes into conflict with man's testimony, even if the man is a so-called expert, a self-proclaimed expert in this or that field, then what should be our attitude? Romans chapter 3 verse 4, Let God be true and let every man be a liar. Let God be true and let every man be a liar. Even if the whole world rises up and contradicts the word of God, we've got to go with God. We have to go with his word because these are the testimonies of the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Trust in the Lord. Do not lean on your understanding. Don't lean on any man's understanding. Jeremiah 17, cursed is the man who trusts in man. Why would we trust in man knowing that there is a curse on those who trust in man? But there is a blessing on those who trust in the Lord, who rely on his testimonies. Also notice in verse 2, the blessed are those who seek him with all their heart. So again, we're not talking about mere external obedience. We're not talking about works-based obedience. We're not talking about legalism, human strength, human ingenuity. We're not talking about any of those things. He's talking about the obedient heart. An obedience that comes from the heart, from the changed heart, from the new heart. The heart of stone has been replaced with the heart of flesh. The Spirit of God has been given to him, and he has written the law of God on the heart. It is first inward in the heart and then manifests itself outwardly in the way that a man orders his life. His obedience is with a full and a sincere heart. With all the heart, not a double-minded man who's unstable in all of his ways, who is hot one day and cold the next day. And here, we're in the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament, 1000 BC, and yet he's saying... 
The blessed is the one who seeks God with all his heart. So this was true of Old Testament saints. This is true of the prophet. And he's not speaking of a thousand years in the future. He's not merely speaking of a thousand years in the future, though it is true of those who seek God today. He's talking about his own day, in his own life, to his contemporaries. He's teaching this. He's not dangling a carrot in front of the people that no one can realize for a thousand years because the day of Pentecost hasn't happened. He is putting this forward to his own people, to his own contemporaries, that this is the life of blessing. And the obvious conclusion is it is something that they can obtain, something that they can walk in. He sought God with all of his heart. And they are expected to seek God with all of the heart, which means that they must have a new heart and they must have the Holy Spirit of God. Impossible for anyone from Adam to the end of the world to seek God with a full and true heart apart from the miracle of regeneration. Again, Psalm 119 makes absolutely no sense if the saints of the Old Testament did not possess the Holy Spirit and if they were not regenerated and they did not have a new heart. How, could, how can this be said of someone with a dead heart? It's impossible. This can only happen by salvation, by salvation, by the Spirit of God. Verse 3 says, They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. Now here the prophet, he cannot mean this in the sense of sinless perfectionism. Right? No Christian in this present life can ever obtain sinless perfectionism as is taught by some false interpreters of the Bible. There are false interpreters of the Bible. There are even some whole denominations that teach this. This was true of the Wesleys in the Wesleyan or the Methodist tradition that the Wesleys taught sinless perfectionism, that they had themselves arrived at sinless perfectionism. Anyone who teaches that we know is contradicting God. We know that he's a liar and the truth is not in him because the Bible clearly teaches us that no Christian in this life will ever obtain sinless perfectionism. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So anyone who says that they do not sin, we know that they are deceived and the truth is not in them. And actually, later in 1 John chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, who are we calling a liar? We call God a liar. You can't call God a liar. That's not a good thing, right? We cannot do that. So here, 1 John 1, 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And there he's talking to Christians. He's talking to believers. Scripture cannot contradict Scripture. Here, he says, they do no unrighteousness. So if we take this passage with 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, we know that he cannot mean that the saints do no unrighteousness perfectly or that they never sin from the moment of their conversion or from some later point, some second blessing that they receive later in life. From that point forward, they never ever sin again. So in what way then does he mean it? What is he talking about? Well, back to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, he means it in this sense. And this is why we always have to use and apply this principle when we're interpreting the Bible. Scripture cannot contradict Scripture, right? It is impossible for this to be the case. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or, know, or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of devil are, are obvious. 
Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So when he says they practice no unrighteousness, he means it in this sense. Practicing sin versus practicing righteousness, right? The one who has the new heart does not practice sin. He does not practice unrighteousness, but instead his life is defined by consistent faithful walking in the pathway of God's commandments. Now, this is not true of the natural man, the natural, carnal, worldly man. He loves sin. He practices sin. He drinks sin like water. He loves it. He makes excuses for his sin. He's not seeking to overcome his sin, but he's pursuing it. He never fights against it, but he indulges in the lust of his flesh. But now that we have a new heart, we no longer practice sin. We don't want to sin, even though we still will sin. Isn't that true of the believer? Isn't that what's described in Romans chapter 7, 25 to 29? Or at tw- there at the end of Romans 7? He's, he's doing the very thing that he hates. He doesn't want to sin, but this is what he does because of the flesh that remains. And when we sin, we don't like it. We want to fight against it. We want to pursue righteousness. We don't make excuses for our sin, but instead we want it to be completely, utterly eradicated from us. This is the difference between the child of the devil and the child of God, between the wicked man and the righteous man, between the natural carnal man and the spiritual man who's been filled with the Spirit of God. When we are born of God, when God's seed abides in us, then what will be true of our life is that we will want to practice righteousness. And our life will be characterized by obedience, godliness, and not by sin. Such was the case with Noah, who was an upright, a blameless man. Such was the case of Job in Job chapter 1, verse 1, who is described as a blameless, an upright man who feared the Lord. This is how Abraham is described in Genesis chapter 26, verse 7, that he walked in the ways of God. And this is what will be true of all Christians. All true believers, they will practice righteousness instead of practicing sin. Verse 4, Psalm 119, verse 4. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. God has ordained his precepts for the purpose that we, the elect, the children of God, the righteous, should keep them diligently. Right When God revealed his word to us, it was not for his nor for our amusement. It's not to pacify the curiosity of man. It is not so that we would have a platform to promote our own self. The express reason here as to why God ordained his precepts is so that we would diligently keep them, diligently, eagerly, wholeheartedly keep them. God's precepts are his rules, and we are obligated to follow and to keep them. They reveal to us the very wisdom of God. They show us how we are to live a life before God. So we should keep them with zeal, with eagerness, with diligence. We are not called to sit as judges and arbiters over the word of God. This is how many people approach the Bible. They come as a critic. They come as a skeptic. They come as a judge, one who's going to sit over the Bible and determine from his own mind which parts of the Bible should be followed, which parts should be believed, and which parts that we can get rid of, that we can dispense with. There are many people who approach the Bible with this attitude, both outside the church and inside the church, that some or all of it can be rejected or can be ignored. But we can't have this attitude. No way. We cannot. It's contrary to the very purpose of God giving us his word. He ordained it for a reason. And the reason is that we would keep it diligently. This is how we must approach the word of God. With fear and trembling. Not as a skeptic, but as a diligent, eager person who wants to know the will of God so that he can obey the will of God. This is how we should come. Lord, I want to know your will. Lord, I want to know what you say about this topic. 
I want to know and understand what this passage teaches so that I can obey the will of God. This is the proper attitude that we should have to the word of God. And whatever it teaches us, we must believe it. Whatever, if it's a doctrine, we must believe it. If it's teaching us righteousness, we must obey it. Lord, teach me your will so that I can obey all of your righteous precepts. An insatiable desire for the word of God. This is what we should have all of our life. This is what we need, nothing else. This is what we need for the Christian life. Verse 5 and 6. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. Here again, we see clearly the prophet cannot be talking about sinless perfectionism. Otherwise, this doesn't make sense. He's longing. He's longing for God to establish him in his commandments, in his statutes. Oh, that my ways would be steadfast. Oh, that my ways would be established to keep the statutes of God. Right? It is his own failings that show this longing, what he desires. He wants to be perfectly established. He wants to do perfectly the will of God. But in this life, as long as we have the flesh, we're not able to obtain that. But that's what he wants. And that's what he's praying for, that God would establish him to keep God's statutes, that I want to obey you with all of my heart. Right? That he is not perfectly keeping God's law, is there, but his fundamental desire is to do the will of God. And this is something that he's praying for. Isn't that what he's doing in verse 5? Oh, that my ways would be established to keep your statutes? Isn't this something that we should pray for as well? This is a good prayer, a good desire to utter to God. Many people, they say, we don't know how to pray. Well, here, this is what you should pray for. This is a good prayer. Lord, establish me in your ways. Lord, give me the strength to walk in your ways. Lord, do not let me turn to the left or to the right. Don't we know that that is the will of God for us? Isn't this the will of God for us to live a godly and a righteous life? And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 24, it says that if we, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us, and he will answer us. Well, here we know this is the will of God for us to not wander, for us to be established in God's statutes. So we should pray that God would establish us, and if we pray with faith, not as a double-minded man, not a man who's doubting, but with faith, God will answer us, and he will help us in our time of need. And this will be a great benefit to our spiritual life, because when we are established to keep God's statutes. When we walk in the pathway of his commandments, living a blameless life before the Lord, then in verse 6 he says, then I will not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. When we look intently at the law of God and we are living a godly life, instead of our conscience condemning us, instead of it being filled with guilt and shame because of the knowledge of our sin, it instead is going to be filled with joy and confidence in our salvation. We're not going to be ashamed when we read the law of God, when we're living a consistent, faithful, obedient life. When we are living this way and we read the commandment of God, then we will not be filled with guilt and shame. But when we're living in sin, when we're committing sins against God, and we read the commandment of God, then it brings about the knowledge of our sin, and it results in guilt and shame before the Lord. Isn't that what he's saying here? The slave who knows the will of the master, and who is doing the will of the master, when the master returns, that slave has nothing to be ashamed of. That slave is not caught off guard. He's not like a kid caught with his cookie in the hand jar. When that master returns, he's not ducking and running and trying to hide around the corner or try to get out of sight. He's not making lame excuses to the master as to why he caught him over there sleeping behind the building. He doesn't have to do those things. But the slave who is lazy and worthless, 
when the master returns. He's the one that makes excuses. He's the one that runs and hides. He's the one who has no confidence and who shrinks back in shame because he knows the master is going to be upset and angry with him because he caught him sleeping on the job. He caught him being lazy and worthless and not doing the will of the master. Well, isn't this the way it should be with us? Christ is our master. We are his slaves. His law, his commandments reveal to us His will for us, how we are supposed to live. And when we are living consistently, faithfully obeying the law of God, then we are not ashamed when we read the word of God. We are not ashamed when we read the commandments of God because when we see those things, it confirms to us that I am a good and faithful and a wise slave. I am doing the will of my master, and I have no reason to be ashamed, but instead I have great confidence and joy in knowing that God is at work within me. It gives us confidence both in this life, and then ultimately it gives us confidence on the day of judgment, that we will not shrink back in shame when Christ appears. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 1 John 2:28 Notice what the apostle says there. This is the same as our prophet in Psalm 119. 1 John 2:28 Now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. When we are abiding in Christ, believing in him, trusting in him, and that results in practicing righteousness, right? Because that's what he's talking about in verse 29. Then when he appears, we will have confidence and will not shrink back away from him in shame at his coming, right? The false believer, the worthless, wicked slave who says, Lord, Lord, but doesn't do the will of his master. Whenever the master appears, what is that wicked, worthless slave going to do? According to 1 John 2, 28, he will shrink back away from him in shame at his coming. Isn't the return of Christ for the true child of God, shouldn't that be a day of joy, a day of delight? Isn't it described to us as a wedding day when the groom arrives to get his bride? What bride, what woman has disdain and hatred for the day of her marriage? Right? What wife, what bride is not filled with joy when that wedding day arrives and the groom comes to take her and to make her his wife? Well, this is how it is for true believers. When Christ appears... They have confidence. They have joy because now they're going to be with their husband. Now they're going to be with their master and their Lord. Now they're going to be with their God. And they have confidence because their life bears witness that they are children of God. But the one who is wicked and worthless, he shrinks back in shame because his life testifies to him that he is an evil person, that he is a lawless person, that he has said, Lord, Lord, but he didn't do the will of his master. And he shrinks back in shame. Also, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 makes this distinction as well. Hebrews 10 verse 36 says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. We are not those who shrink back in shame, right? Who want to hide in caves and holes and have rocks cover them because they are afraid of the judgment that is coming upon them because of the knowledge of their sin. It is the wicked and the disobedient. Those who say, Lord, Lord, but who practice lawlessness, they will shrink back to destruction. 
But the faithful, wise slave who is found doing the will of his master, he will not shrink back in shame on the day of judgment, but his head will be lifted up. He will lift up his head with joy, with confidence, at the return of his master. That happens in this life, and it will happen on the day of judgment for those who are walking according to the law of the Lord. We will look on his commandments, and we will not be ashamed when we look upon them. Verse 7. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. When we learn the righteous judgments of God, it should result in thanksgiving and praise to God. And here, this learning is the same as our catechism question this morning. It is the learning that is not merely the outward hearing of the word of God, but it is the hearing of faith the hearing accompanied with the effectual calling, the effectual teaching of the Holy Spirit in the inward man, right, in the heart. It is the hearing of 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 10. Notice there that it says this, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words." But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. That's what he means when he says, when I learn your righteous judgments. He means it in this sense, being taught by the Spirit, the Spirit teaching us, in the inward man, teaching us the very wisdom of God. The natural man may conceptually learn the judgments of God, but he's not taught by the Spirit. And because he relies on his own carnal, wicked wisdom, he does not see the righteousness of the judgments of God. So instead, he scoffs at them. He mocks them. He thinks his own judgments are superior to the Lord's. But the spiritual man who is taught by the spirit of truth, he sees the goodness, the righteousness in the judgments of God. He sees how beneficial they are for his life. He sees that the righteous judgments of God are not detrimental to his life or to his happiness, but rather they promote his life, his well-being, and his happiness. And he knows that these righteous judgments cannot be obtained by human wisdom or human strength or human understanding, but only by the revelation of God. And when he learns these things truly, he gives thanks to God because he knows he would have never arrived at this understanding without God teaching him. And God is the one who has taught him. And so he says, thank you. He thanks God. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, for your grace, for your kindness in revealing to me your righteous judgments so that I can know the difference between truth and error, so that I can know the difference between good and evil, so that I can know the difference between righteousness and wickedness. This is the attitude that we must have. Many people want to poke holes in the judgments of God. They question the judgments of God. They undermine the judgments of God. They find many ways to justify their rejecting of the judgments of God. Many critics, many naysayers who will question the wisdom and justice of God. Who will say, whether overtly or whether in their own heart, is that really just? Is that really righteous? Should we really live this way? Is this really the good and proper thing that we should do? But the new heart doesn't do that. The man with the new heart, he isn't a critic. He's not a naysayer. He's not poking holes in the judgments of God. He's thanking God. 
He's praising God for His righteous judgments because He sees the wisdom in those things. He sees the goodness and the righteousness in the ways of God, and He sees how superior the wisdom of God is to His own carnal wisdom and to the wisdom of this world. And He knows He would have never come to this apart from the will of God, apart from God revealing it to Him. So He thanks God for His righteous judgments. Then lastly, verse 8, I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. Here we see two things. First, the resolve, the resolve of the prophet, his commitment to keep the statutes of the Lord. He is determined to keep God's law. And this is how we must be from our conversion to our death. This is the Christian life. Lord, I am resolved, I am determined, I am committed to doing your will. And if I fall and if I fail, then Lord, bring me to repentance and I'm going to get up and I'm going to press on. This is the way of the Christian life. A resolve, a commitment, a vow, a determination, however you want to describe it, to do the will of God. I'm not going to live in sin anymore, but God, I am determined to do your will. I shall keep your statutes. This is the way that we must be. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 and 16. And I'll tell you, keep your finger in Philippians because we'll come back there one last time. Philippians 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have obtained. This is the way that we have to be. I am pressing onward, pressing toward the life that God has for me in Jesus Christ. And this we will do, right? We will keep the statues of God if God permits. If God permits. That's the end of the verse. Do not forsake me utterly. Lord, I want to keep your statutes. Lord, I am determined to obey your will. Lord, I am resolved to obey your commandments. But I know that I cannot do this on my own. I cannot, through my own strength, obtain what I desire. But I know that you have the strength, you have the power, you have the grace and mercy that I need. So please, Lord, give me what I need. Help me, give me the strength, give me daily the grace of God that I need so that I can live the Christian life. Do not forsake me utterly, but instead come and help me in my time of need. And here, there's no contradiction between these two desires. The determination to obey God that must come from us and the complete dependence upon God to supply strength and grace to us. These two always go hand in hand. This is our sanctification. It is our responsibility to pursue and seek the Christian life with all of our might. And yet we also need God to help us, to give us the grace. It is our duty. It is our obligation, but not through our power and not through our strength, but only through the help of the Lord. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Philippians 2, verse 12. So says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation, he says, with fear and trembling. That is their obligation. That is their duty. But who is the one working within us? It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And he who began the good work is the one who will bring it to completion 
on the day of Christ. So this is the Christian life. This is the way that we are supposed to live. A determination to do the will of God, to walk in the pathway of his commandments, while at the same time completely, utterly depending on the grace and strength of God for him to help us during the time of our sojourning, during the time of our Christian life. So then let us press onward, as the apostle said. Let us press on toward the upward calling, toward the goal, right, of perfection. Though we may not obtain it in this life, yet we can still press on toward it, and we know for certain that we will obtain it in the life to come when we are transformed into the very image of Christ. And until that day, this is the way that we're supposed to live. Depending upon God, loving his word, walking in his commandments, keeping his statutes, doing those things that are pleasing to the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking for you to, Lord, open our eyes and to give us wisdom and to give to us understanding. Lord, you tell us that if we lack wisdom, Lord, we are to ask you. Lord, you are the fount of all wisdom and that you will graciously give to us wisdom. As long as we're not asking with doubting, like a double-minded man who is unstable in all of his ways. Lord, we know that that man will receive nothing from you. But Lord, we come to you, Lord, desiring wisdom. Lord, desiring for you to teach us. Lord, that you would convince us in our heart, Lord, in the inward man, that the life of blessing is the life of obedience. That, Lord, walking in the pathway of your commandments... Lord, living a blameless and an upright life in this present world, that, Lord, this is where true blessing is found, in being obedient to you. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would observe your testimonies. Lord, that we would want to know your will. Lord, that we would want to know, Lord, what it is that you declare concerning everything in this life. And, Lord, that we would be those who seek you with all of their heart. Lord, we pray that you would bind our heart to you. Lord, that our heart, Lord, would not limp between two opinions. Lord, that we would not be hot and cold. But that, Lord, we would have great zeal for you. Lord, that we might be those who diligently keep your commandments. Lord, we know that you have ordained your precepts. Lord, for our benefits. Lord, for our good. Lord, so that we would be faithful to you. Lord, so that we would diligently Keep them and do those things that are pleasing in your sight. Lord, we pray that our ways would be established before you. Lord, to keep your statutes. Lord, we need you to help us. We need your strength. We need your grace and mercy. And Lord, this is what we long for, what we desire. Lord, to live a consistent, godly Christian life. Lord, that no sin would have dominion over us. Lord, that we would not fall into, Lord, either unknown or known sin, but that, Lord, we would hate all sin and that we would want to do what is right in your sight. Lord, we want to have confidence in this life that we are your children. Lord, we especially want to have confidence on the day of judgment when we stand before you. Lord, we know that there are many who call you Lord, Lord, but who do not do what you say, but rather they are those who practice lawlessness and that when you appear, that they will shrink back in shame on that day because of the knowledge of their sin. And that even now, Lord, they shrink back in shame when they read your commandments. But Lord, we want to read your word. Lord, we want to observe and to look upon all of your commandments. And Lord, we don't want our conscience tormenting us with the knowledge of our sin. But rather, we want... Lord, this to be a time where we are confirmed in our faith by the Spirit who is within us. Lord, that he is testifying to us that we are your children. And so, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to walk in your ways so that when we look on your commandments, Lord, we would not be filled with shame, but instead be filled with joy. Lord, we thank you for your righteous judgments. Lord, we know that our own carnal wisdom is demonic, it is evil. Lord, it does not promote truth and righteousness. Lord, your judgments are pure and righteous. Lord, they are holy. They are as silver that has been refined seven times. 
And Lord, we could have never come to any of this understanding through our own wisdom, through our own ingenuity. Lord, only you can reveal these things to us. And Father, we thank you that you have done so. Lord, that you have given us access to your word, which contains to us, Lord, it is a, a very deposit of your wisdom. Lord, all of your righteous judgments are found from Genesis to Revelation, revealed to us in your word. But Lord, as well, we thank you that we have been taught, Lord, within the heart as well, that your spirit has come and Lord has taken these spiritual truths and taught them to us by making us into spiritual people. And Lord, we pray that he would continue to do so throughout the remainder of our life. So Father, we thank and we praise you for this. Lord, that you have taught us from your word. And Lord, we pray as well that we would be those who keep your statues. Lord, this is what we want to do. Lord, this is what we are determined to do. Lord, to be obedient and faithful to you. And yet, Lord, we pray that you would not forsake us. Lord, that you would come and give us daily the grace and the strength that we need to live a life that is pleasing to you. And Lord, whenever we fail, Lord, we pray that you would renew us through repentance and that we would press on toward the kingdom of God. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. And, Lord, we pray as we go through this study of Psalm 119, Lord, you would confirm to us more and more, Lord, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That, Lord, your word would be a greater delight to us than anything in this world and that it would be our daily bread. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do this, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.